Hello, and welcome to another episode of our Outlier Founder series, where we dig into the ideas, frameworks, and strategies used by the world's best founders. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, I'm joined by Andrew Carter, co-founder and CEO of Smallhold, which is upending the food industry by growing their mushrooms in Michelin star-rated restaurants and grocery stores and through their network of on-site and macro farms. Smallhold is inverting the way food is traditionally grown and distributed. Today, 68% of all mushrooms consumed in the United States come from a single town in Pennsylvania called Kennett Square. 400 million pounds worth of mushrooms per year to be exact. Which means that most mushrooms are transported across a vast distribution network to reach stores all around the United States. Smallhold knew there was a better way, so they spent years creating a proprietary set of technologies that allows them to grow mushrooms in an incredibly small footprint, about the size of a small standing cabinet. The first Smallhold on-site farms went up in restaurants around New York, which was followed by on-site farms at grocery stores, including central market stores across Texas, where these on-site farms sit right next to where the mushrooms are sold in the grocery store. Smallhold is an incredible example of what the future of food looks like. They're inverting the single farm approach and pioneering a footprint of small on-site farms and regional macro farms. They've created a whole slew of proprietary technologies to automate the process and help restaurants and grocery stores grow the same amount of mushrooms every single week. And they're just getting started. In this episode, we cover the wild world of mushrooms, from the Netflix documentary Fantastic Fungi to the book Entangled Life to Mushroom People. We go deep on how mushrooms work, why most of us have eaten only a single variety of mushrooms our entire lives, and why we should all be eating more mushrooms. Andrew covers why the modern food industry is broken, from why most apples you eat are nearly a year old, and why most fish sold in the United States, even if it's caught in the States, is sent to China to be processed and then back to the U.S. to be sold. We cover the technology behind Smallhold, from the incredible number of sensors embedded into their farms to how much data they crunch every day to grow incredible mushrooms reliably 24-7-365. And all of the lessons Andrew has learned along the way, from how they built a new direct-to-consumer side of their business during the pandemic to how they've iterated and refined their business model over the years. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 120. That's 120. And you can learn more about Smallhold at smallhold.com or by following Smallhold on Twitter. Please enjoy my conversation with Andrew Carter of Smallhold. Andrew Carter, thank you so much for the time and for joining me on Outlier Academy. I am thrilled to have you on to talk all about Smallhold. Thanks for having me. So we're going to spend, you know, the next hour-ish talking about uh, a business you've been building since 2017. You're founded in Brooklyn um, and you grow mushrooms and you're using basically mushrooms uh, to up in the food chain and to rethink how people, uh, you know, consume food, how food is sourced, how food gets to consumers. Um, before we get into all of that, can you just share a quick sketch of your background? Yeah, totally. So uh, I grew up in Los Angeles in California. Um Wanted to get as far away from there as possible when I graduated high school and so moved to Vermont, uh, where I actually met my co-founder. We were roommates in college. Uh, we did not make, this is not a college project. That was a long time ago. Um, but I studied bioremediation technology. Essentially, it was heavy chemistry and biology and couldn't find much work doing that out of school, but very excited about it and ended up uh, finding a way and uh, a career in the indoor agriculture space. Uh, I've been, I've had the opportunity to work on some amazing large scale uh, commercial indoor uh, operations, mainly doing hydroponic leafy greens and herbs. And what that is is essentially like tons of control, tons of climate control, uh, which enables you to grow produce year round in places where you normally can't grow year round. But I've visited some amazing facilities and helped people build stuff all around the world, and so it's been a really fun adventure doing all of that. Um, I'm very much like a science guy and kind of an operator guy and, uh, eventually kind of got, got, a, a little burnt out on the leafy green space and wanted to grow something differently. And I was kind of exploring all these different kinds of things that we could grow indoors, um, and found mushrooms extremely fascinated. I fascinating. I've, I always have, but after spending so much time growing indoors, I really thought there might've been some parallel and it would have been easy for me to figure out, but I was completely wrong. Fungi are its own kingdom and they more, more like animals than like plants. And so, you know, growing them in the ways that we grow them like that, that took a lot of work and a lot of new R and D and a lot of new development that we've been doing over the years. 
And, you know, you talked about, you know, starting in kind of leafy greens and then this indoor, you know, farming uh, and then moving over to mushrooms. I'm not aware of anyone else that really specializes in mushrooms. What does that space look like of people who focus just exclusively on mushrooms? Yeah, the mushroom space is very interesting. Um, there are people who focus on mushrooms. I mean, there are mycologists that are out there. Um, I am probably a mycologist to a bunch of people who aren't mycologists, but I don't really consider myself a mycologist. I'm more of like a cultivator or a grower or a farmer. There are people who go and get PhDs in this kind of stuff. And I, you would not want to forage with me. I do try, but like, let's not do that. And so the mushroom industry, um, commercial cultivation wise, a lot of it is centralized in Pennsylvania about in the United States. About 80% of it is is in that region, uh, and a vast majority of it are button mushrooms. And so white, brown, and portobello mushrooms, they're all the same mushroom. They're agaricus, um, grown in similar ways. And they're a fine mushroom. Uh, we, we talk a lot of smack about button mushrooms. They're not bad for you. They, they are very good for you, actually. And so if it's the only mushroom you can get, um, that's great. Uh, but there's just so much more out there. And when you get into specialty mushrooms, there are some larger commercial growers who are becoming one of them. But most of the time, people are either sourcing them from farmers markets, like smaller growers that sell locally um, or at restaurants, uh, or they import them. There's a much larger industry that exists in Asia, mainly in China, Japan, and Korea. About, I think it's estimated like 80 percent of the global mushroom production is in China, and so you know it's a way bigger kind of industry out there. Um, there are pros and cons of those kinds of production. Um, every region has their own sort of way of doing it. In the mushroom area, it's similar to kind of leafy greens in that a lot of the emerging technology originally came out of the Netherlands, actually. And so when you're looking at greenhouse stuff, a lot of it is uh, Dutch technology. Um, they've been doing it for a really long time. Um, but a lot of the newer tech is coming out of Asia as well, which, because there's so much more interest there. The U.S. is very young, uh, which I think is really exciting. And I think a lot of people from overseas think is really exciting. The average consumption here is like two to three pounds per person per year. Uh, in China, it's estimated to be like 20 to 30 pounds per person per year. And so while you wouldn't expect an American consumer to quite get there, just adding a pound or two and completely changing uh, the face of the mushroom industry in the United States is totally feasible when you look at numbers like that. Yeah. I mean, that's an order of magnitude difference. And so, yeah, even if you double from there, it's a huge, it's a huge step function change. Yeah, it's totally, it makes sense. And there's not a lot of produce like that. Like, you know, it's like leafy greens, um, a lot of berries and stuff. The, the difference between regions isn't that much. We, a lot of people in developed countries are working, are living on like a global diet and mushrooms just have so much of, so much opportunity with health and nutrition and all of that, but also just so much opportunity in that there's like people don't know what you can do with them. And so we want to be there providing that high quality product, growing locally, doing all the things that we care about and making sure that people are eating the right kind of mushrooms as much as possible. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said uh, a moment ago, just because I'm curious. You said that 80% of production happens in Pennsylvania. Is that climate related? Is that kind of just where the industry took root? What? Why is that the case? Yeah, there's a lot of theories. Uh, I think so. So it's not a bad, it's all in this area called Kennett Township. It's outside of Philadelphia. Um, and that area Apparently, there were a bunch of entrepreneurial families, I think mostly of Italian descent, uh, in like the 1800s that had access to horse manure when they were building Philadelphia. And you can grow button mushrooms on uh, animal byproducts. And they did that and created these very large, some of them are still family owned. There's private equity involved in a lot of these facilities as well now, but just these big farms growing buttons. And it's not to say that there's not some benefits of growing there. There's more, it's more about a distribution uh, the advantage there. Like you have access to the East East coast, all of the major cities and you can get into the Midwest. And so there's, there's a lot of benefits from being there, but I think the origin origination of it was mainly just because there were some people there at the right, the right place at the right time. Yeah, it's fascinating. I want to ask one more question, then we'll dive a little bit deeper into in the science of mushrooms and growing mushrooms and, and talk about Smallhold's business. 
So, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, you'd been growing leafy greens, you got interested in mushrooms. When did you decide that you wanted to start a business growing mushrooms? And what was that conversation decision like? I was consulting for a while doing the leafy green stuff. I worked for a few companies and then found a found a home with a group called Agritecture. Uh, a close friend of mine named Henry Gordon Smith started this business and they have a blog. They're still consulting. It was great. I was kind of the science guy. And eventually my job was helping a bunch of people with business models. And a lot of people were raising a lot of money on some of my business models, but I was also just trying to help people problem solve because people make promises that are hard to keep sometimes in this space. And I kind of just thought that I wanted to do something on my own business and try it out. And I think that towards the very beginning with small holds, I had the ambition of creating a business. I wasn't quite sure, you know, exactly how big it would get. That happened a little later, but this was, I was playing around with the idea before 2017 when we started, you know, I was working and then building stuff on the side and trying to figure out, like I had a little lab that I was, it looked like a, it looked like we were making drugs, you know, in the basement. Um, it looked crazy, like pressure cookers and propane stoves and all this kind of stuff. It's how a lot of mushroom growers start, honestly. And so I, I knew that I wanted to do something, but I was on my own at that point. And I thought of the name and I thought of some, the loose concept of a distributed farm. I thought I definitely started thinking that we would do mushrooms and then uh, my co-founder, Adam, uh, he came back from a motorcycle trip and he had his own experience with a bunch of different startups, mainly in data privacy and technology, and which just helped me out. We were, we're close friends. And so he was just sort of helping me grow mushrooms. And we started getting these calls from like amazing restaurants and grocery stores because people started hearing about this random stuff we were doing on the weekend. And I had all these ideas of building this technology out and we just decided to like quit our jobs in 2016 and go for it in 2017. And, and we got very organized very quickly. We, we were lucky enough to go through the Techstars program, which is an accelerator program in 2017, right in the beginning of the company. And they really helped us, uh, you know, organize our thoughts and, and make sure that we're communicating our, business in the right way to the right investors and accessing finance in interesting ways and all of that uh, really helped accelerate us what they're supposed to do. But yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've been trying to do something and, and now, now it's definitely something. I mean, we're, we're a fairly large organization now with national distribution with farms all over the place. And so it's a very exciting time over here. So I'm going to try to describe uh, your business model because I think it's really interesting. And then I'd love you to kind of flesh out from there and, and talk about how each of these kind of pieces of the business came to be. But effectively, you know, I think one of the things that's fascinating about what you're building is this idea of a distributed farm. So taking something that would traditionally be one farm, you know, as an example, a farm in Pennsylvania serving all of the United States and turning it into this network. And, you know, you guys have done that by having on-site farms, uh, which I want to talk about in much more depth, but you know, effectively it's this kind of small mini farm that might live at a restaurant or a grocery store. You have regional hubs that are much larger that do more volume that can serve grocery stores. And then you have this uh, kind of wonderful uh, direct-to-consumer side of the business where people can actually grow their mushrooms at home. How did each of those come to be? And I guess what's unique about each of those elements? Yeah. So Smallhold wants people to eat more mushrooms. We are mainly just trying to get mushrooms on people's plates in any sort of way possible. We want them to be grown locally so they're fresh and enjoyable. Um, and we have different ways of doing that. We did that with uh, on-site productions, as you mentioned, mini farms. That was the first thing we came out to market with. Uh, the main reason that we came out to market with that first is we didn't have any space and we didn't have any place to grow mushrooms on our pro We had no property. And so we convinced restaurants to allow us to grow in the nooks and crannies of their spaces. And then uh, that evolved quite a bit because a lot of people are extremely excited about that. You can find those in central markets in Texas. You can find them in various restaurants in New York uh, and some grocery stores here as well. And you'll definitely see more of them in the years to come. We are continuing to install those. But not every customer necessarily wants a mini farm. Some places might not have as much mushroom sell through as certain places. And so uh, we built larger facilities. We call them macro farms. Our most recent one we just built is 34,000 square feet in Vernon. It's 10 minutes east of downtown LA. And those are uh, growing specialty mushrooms that are uh, packed in compostable cardboard clamshells. 
uh, those uh, are sold in retailers all over the place, uh, but they're all sold regionally. And so if you're buying our mushrooms in Los Angeles, for example, at Whole Foods or Erewhon or Lassen's, um, they're all grown there. They're not grown from our facility in New York. We're building a, nas- a national brand with local distribution. It's not an easy thing. It's a weird thing, but it's exactly how we want to do it because we think that the quality speaks for itself and it really helps get more people excited about mushrooms. Uh, one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of these mushrooms that we grow on the shelf is because they have horrible shelf life and they do not ship well. And the industry at large just ships produce all over the place. And no one's really figured it out the way that we're figuring it out. The grow kits was very interesting. We, we, uh, it was very much a COVID response. We had some great customers going on, going into COVID. We were a tiny team. We were a team of 12 uh, going into that and uh, had a couple Whole Foods stores with our mini farms in it, but uh, had a bunch of conversations going with some amazing retailers, including HEB and Central Market in Texas. But everyone just went dark, like all of our restaurant customers disappeared. And uh, that was on, you know, in in March of, of 2020 or whatever it was. And we just kind of jumped into action. We like, we realized that our customers were still there. They were stronger than ever, honestly, like people wanted to be healthy people. The vegan thing was going on. Fantastic fungi came out, all this kind of stuff started happening. And it was just more that the way of getting our mushrooms to them got more complicated. And so we did a home delivery for a while that was just literally like me and Adam, my co-founder and our team, just driving around in a van. Like we had a Google sheet where people could sign up and get five pounds a week from us. There's a lot of mushrooms and we had a lot of people eating a lot of mushrooms, which goes back to our conversation about how much consumption you can have. Like our customers were eating 50 or 60 pounds a year. And then we realized that a bunch of our friends uh, lost their jobs. And so we had all these commercial blocks and we just kind of like gave it out because people wanted to have fun, but also people were struggling to feed themselves and stuff is very horrible. And we uh, had a lot of people just growing mushrooms at home and it turned into this viral thing. And we, I mean, the story was really funny. We like, we, it was very much a New York thing. And then some friends of ours wanted to write an article about us in Bon Appetit. And uh, Tony Ann is the author and she, Tony Ann Fernandez, and she wrote on, she wrote me, she emailed me on like a Thursday night and was like, this piece is going to go up on Friday. It's going to say that if you're in New York, you can buy from, from Smallhold, but if you're anywhere else, you can buy from this other company. And we were like, that's silly. And so I stayed up all night making a Shopify page and Adam, my co-founder, stayed up all night figuring out this whole like supply chain thing. And then it launched the next day and we sold like just a crazy amount of kits and it just went like completely viral from there. Um, We were in New York Times, we were in like Eater, we were in all sorts of stuff for that. And we still continue to do it. We've never run ads. Uh, What we see is that just allows people, it's like a good gateway into mushrooms. Like we think that once you sort of get into it, you, people get obsessed with mushrooms. They become mushroom people. You know, I'm sure you know people or the people listening probably know one or two people. Maybe you are one um, where you're just obsessed. Like you're like, it's like a lifestyle. And there's nothing, no better way of converting someone into that than getting them to grow it. Because then that's like a life-changing moment for them. And uh, so we, we continue to offer that. And it's still getting fresh mushrooms. It's as fresh as possible. It's grown locally. It's grown in your kitchen. And, um, and so it, it all kind of feeds back into that idea that we can get people to eat this, this really fresh, exciting product that's grown right there. I'd love to go back and talk about uh, the science of growing mushrooms and in particular those on-site farms because, you know, and we'll add a photo to the show notes. Uh, I encourage everyone to look up Small Hold and look at some of the photos on your website. But the on-site little mini farms look funky and weird and different than anything you've ever seen. So one, maybe talk a little bit at a high level about just how you grow mushrooms. (laughs) And then two, what is unique and what have you patented and innovated on in terms of how you produce and grow them? Sure. So main thing to think about are fungi uh, are its own kingdom. And so animals are a kingdom and plants have a kingdom and fungi have their own kingdom. And so they, a lot of people think they're like plants, but they're really not. They function a little more like animals actually than like plants. I mean, they, there's, people will argue with you whether they have, uh, you know, a conscience and all that kind of stuff, but 
the mushrooms that we grow, they digest substrate, they release enzymes kind of like your stomach does. They breathe in oxygen, they release CO2, they don't have lungs, but the functioning that is happening with these organisms is more similar to animals than to plants, um, than to most plants. But the mushrooms we grow, they're called saprotrophic mushrooms, uh, which means that they're like a digester mushroom. And we feed them mostly sawdust, and it's a byproduct from the timber industry. Most mushroom farmers are using industrial byproducts, whether it's from farms or horse manure in Pennsylvania, which is amazing for a lot of mushroom growers. But we found that sawdust from the timber industry needed dealt with. It still goes to landfill, and it's a great product for these kinds of mushrooms. That's what these mushrooms grow on naturally anyway. And so we source all of this byproduct. It's hydrated and sterilized and then seeded. It's inoculation is technically the term, but you put a little bit of the mycelium, which is the living organism, into each of these substrate blocks. And then it grows out and it releases enzymes and breaks down that substrate. Eventually, when it's done with its food, then it fruits out the mushrooms and that's what people are eating. The fruit of the mushroom is kind of like an apple off an apple tree. Uh, so when you buy a mushroom on the shelf, it's more of the, it's a reproduct part of the reproductive cycle. Uh, it's not actually the living organism. The living organism is in the mycelium. Um, and that's a fibrous sort of net that exists everywhere. It's under the ground. There's different kinds of it. You know, the, the type that we grow are again, these saprotrophic mushrooms, but there's mushroom, there's fungi that have relationships with trees, mycorrhizal relationships. There's other types of fungi that have different relationships with their environment, but the mycelium network exists all over the place. And I'm sure you can go down a wormhole just talking about that, but that's the living thing that we're trying to cultivate that then eventually fruits in our spaces. And so what we figured out, we figured out a bunch of stuff, but uh, the technology itself really is, is extremely good at running the fruiting cycle of the mycelium. And so inside of each of those mini farms, as well as our, our large facilities, they capture tons of data and then push them to our own servers. We're running our own analysis of what's going on in that space. And we're trying to not only like replicate climates that these mushrooms are from, but modify those climates so they're even better for these mushrooms and whatever environment that they're in. Um, and that's unfortunately kind of complicated. So the, the uh, mushrooms generally want cool temperatures, high humidity, and high airflow. They release CO2, but they don't really like being around too much CO2. And so all those things individually are not that complicated, but once you're trying to do them together, especially when you're trying to be efficient with your use of resources like we are, it's like way too complicated. And so we have to develop our own ways of doing it. And we're not the only mushroom farm out there. Like, obviously, there's like a whole industry, but... Um, we couldn't find any control system out there doing exactly what we wanted. And so we, I started building it, but we have a whole engineering team now that's built the whole entire thing. And now we have granted patents on it as well. Um, but it's the same system that's applied to our larger facilities, the, the macro farms, um, just in a larger footprint. But all of that data gets pushed into this large database that we're collecting on all the varieties that we grow. And so it just makes us smarter and smarter and grow better and better as we continue to scale. It's fascinating. I mean, one, well, I learned a ton, but I didn't know mycelium was a substrate. I want to know more about relationships and how they have relationships. So I'll maybe ask that question in a second. I actually didn't know the mushrooms were fruit. So that's super interesting. It's part of the reproductive cycle. So I guess a couple of quick follow-up questions. It would be really interesting to know more, uh, just a little bit more about what you're talking about or your relationship and what that looks like. Cause I'm guessing it's maybe a little bit, uh, I don't know. It's a little bit deeper than most people might think. And then kind of secondarily, if you could talk a little bit about the technology technology and how much it took you guys to come up with that and refine that because it is very interesting. I think from the outside looking in, you would think, uh, well, I, I would necessarily, yeah, I would think you'd have a lot of control systems. I wouldn't necessarily think you, you would need a, as complex a series of sensors and database and cloud computation as you guys use, which is fascinating. Yeah. So mushrooms themselves are, are complicated. Uh, I, what I find so fascinating about them is that people don't really understand them that well. And we understand a lot at small holds, but we also just kind of embrace the unknown and get excited about the facts that we'll never really understand them. But again, stepping back, it's always important to think of it as a kingdom. And so the mushrooms that we grow, they have their own relationship with the environment and that they're digesters. And so like tree falls in the woods, 
these organisms come and help break that tree down and turn it into nutrition, whether it's in a fruiting body form for certain types of animals or it breaks it down so then it can go through a further decomposition process. There are some types of fungi that will do it, will come in after mushrooms like we grow come in. It's like this whole entire process that happens through the decomposition cycle. But then there's other types of mushrooms that have more of like, you know, a true relationship with plants. Those are called mycorrhizal mushrooms. People struggle to grow those. There's some work doing it in labs, but most people don't really know how to grow those. And so most of them don't fruit any mushrooms that people can eat. But there are some very popular ones like chanterelles, for example, uh, matsutake, uh, truffles even. Those are mycorrhizal relationships. And what that is is you have a plant and then it has the roots underground. And then the mycelium itself creates a symbiotic relationship. So it's like beneficial to both parties uh, with those roots. Mycelium can grow way faster and it can help give it more uh, in capture zone for water. And so it can help it collect more water and more nutrition from the soil. And then in turn, the plant gives it uh, sugars usually or some form of nutrition from photosynthesis. There's some amazing stuff out there about this. Like, again, it's, it's literally everywhere. 90, 90 plus percent of plants have this relationship. And so there's a question really whether plants and mushrooms really are separate. Like, why are we even considering them two different things when they pretty much like the outliers are the ones that ex- don't, don't have this relationship. There's a lot of research showing that original plants that came from, from the water, you know, as evolution was going on, didn't even have roots. They just had this relationship. And then the roots ended up just being more of a host for the mycelium. And so, you know, that's, that's a bigger, another bigger conversation, but you could look at humans the same way. I mean, we're like a, we're like a donut of bacteria and fungi. And so like, you know, what, what are we without those relationships? And so that's, that's what I mean by relationships. And we try to, you know, think about that as we grow, um, like all of our wastes. So the compost, the, the substrate after we grow mushrooms goes to these large composting projects. We work on big remediation projects in Los Angeles as well. Some really exciting stuff. Um, but trying to like make sure that the stuff that we're growing goes to the right place because it would be devastating if it went to landfill, which a lot of people do, um, but we don't want to do that. And so you're asking about the technology as well. Yeah. If you could just flesh that out a little bit more, the origin of it. And, you know, I would guess that you guys maybe are over indexed a little bit in a positive way in being very tech forward. So how did that come about? And like, maybe talk, take us in a little bit deeper into what's happening with that technology and with all that computation. Yeah. So, I mean, the original source of it was that we had a shipping container farm that was on this amazing place at this amazing, like temporary farm called uh, North Brooklyn Farms in Williamsburg and love them to death. But the power there was like spotty at best. And every grow we grow, we grew was extremely important to us and power would go out and we wouldn't know. And like, we basically had to like start creating alert systems and that's, that's available. Like, obviously like you can get different kinds of like power alert systems, but we started playing around with that and then started playing around with control systems and then really trying to find what was available on the market for way more small scale grows. And that's all DIY. This is the same issue with indoor farming is that most of the tech is for like huge facilities or DIY or like weed is like weed is big in hydroponics. And so like all the cannabis stuff, which is a lot of it's kind of DIY as well. And so mid scale, like people taking it seriously, but don't want to like build some like multi-million dollar facility. It's rare. And so uh, we uh, started sort of fitting, fitting that area with the technology that we're building. But as we started building more of the systems and realizing all of the controls that we needed, it evolved from there. Um, but you can grow mushrooms without tons of tech. I mean, we sell grow kits to people and they just spray it with water and they can grow it on their counter, but you can't grow the same kinds of mushrooms and you can't grow the consistency and the quality that we grow. And so like we have customers that demand mushrooms at the same time, every week, same volume, same consistency. We have, we're certified organic. We have crazy food safety certifications as well. And all of this, 
you know, you can do with low tech farms. It's a lot of people do, but, but it ends up being more difficult than it needs to be in our opinion. And so we wanted to make it so we could build something that's way more efficient and way more scalable and having these systems in place are really what does it, um, you know, most of the mushroom farms, and this is an issue with all farms, is that they rely on like migrant labor and, uh, you know, problematic ways of running their businesses. Um, there's some great mushroom farms out there. I'm not trying to say that like they're all like this, but um, it's an issue with agriculture in general in the United States. And we don't want to do that. And we think that technology will allow us. So the, the people that work at Smallhold can be paid a living wage and can be doing the right thing and we can be growing a really good quality product for the people that are consuming our stuff. I'd love to talk about that note for a second, because obviously hearing you talk about the system makes me think a lot of it is automated and maybe there's even very, you know, maybe someone needs to go visit it a couple times per week. Uh, how much human, how, how much of the operations is kind of human centric and what do the humans do versus the algorithm and kind of the sensors? Yeah, so we do have humans. Um, we have so most of our work to to date has been around uh, climate management, and so essentially, like these spaces, you can roll the blocks in, and then you can leave it, and then when they're ready to harvest, then they come out. And so we're still working with people to like our team is harvesting and packing, and that gives us a really amazing quality. Like it's like handpicked, it's handpacked, it's amazing. But we are working on further automation for that as well. I think it's it's gonna be a long time till the mushrooms we grow are fully automated for anyone. It's, it's rare to see that. You can see automated button mushroom farms, you can see other kinds of automation that exists, but picking the mushrooms, it's not. it doesn't lend itself to soft robotics or any of these kinds of things. But pack line automation is on the new, like the more soon horizon for us. Um, a lot of the facilities will be getting that later this year, actually. I want to talk about, uh, I want to kind of go higher level for a second and talk about the food industry and the food system that we have today, you know, because obviously a goal, a motivation uh, for small hold is to rethink that food system. And, you know, my experience with it or my kind of understanding of it is one, it seems very monolithic Two, it seems very transportation heavy. So things are, you know, like some of the stats, uh, I, I can't remember any off the top of my head, but I know there's crazy stats around it taking weeks, oftentimes months. I think it's even three plus months a lot of times for when food enters, basically leaves a farm to when it actually arrives at the grocery store. So, I mean, you know, those are a couple of data points. What do you know about the food industry that most people don't? And how do you think about the problems with it? And then talk a little bit about how you're trying to reshape that, rethink that. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been in it for a while. And so I know a lot of stuff and there's so many crazy things and small salt can help with certain things, but also not other things. Like the thing that always blows my mind is like uh, the fish industry. Have you ever heard any of this stuff? So no. like they, most fish in the United States, if it was, even if it was caught in the United States, it's cheaper for them to ship it to China to get processed and then it comes back. And so if you have like Alaskan caught, whatever salmon, then it's usually like, it'll still say it's grow, it's caught in Alaska, but it was shipped. It's all frozen. All fish is frozen because of, like shipping, but also food safety stuff. And they ship it to China, process it, and then ship it back. It's like pretty much like it's a vast majority of fish. And so like, if you have a relationship with a fisherman and stuff, that's great. But most fish you buy is, has been like around the world and uh, which is insane. And most people don't know that um, you're right. Certain kinds of produce like apples, you know, if you're buying an apple, a lot of time it's a year old and there's an amazing innovation and in, in, in making that, uh, so it feels like it's a fresh apple. Mushrooms have some interesting stuff. Like a lot of it is shipped from overseas. It's not as, I would say, like sophisticated as like these big like ethylene chambers and stuff like that. that they do with like bananas and apples and stuff like that. But they do have a lot of food miles imported. The, the main issue that I see with a lot of imported mushrooms, there's the footprint of that, but overseas there's some amazing growers in china and japan i would never say that they're not like that's where like i would i would strive to grow like that um but sometimes the power is not that clean a lot of the time there's like coal-powered facilities and it's not uh 
the, the carbon footprint of that kind of food is, is a little high for, for my liking. And so growing it domestically is very important. Uh, so, but, but really how I feel the U S food distribution is that like, it's kind of based and this is, it is, is an assumption and it's like kind of like very broad. And so I know that there's so much more to it, but vast majority of agriculture in the U S are like staple crops and uh, meat. And so like you have corn, wheat, soy, um, cotton, uh, you have beef, like all of those kinds of products, they can actually ship fairly well because they're processed, they're to grow in really large crop, like really large areas. And then they're dehydrated or processed in a way, and they, they don't need to be eaten fresh. I mean, fresh corn is great, but like majority of people are not eating fresh corn. And so that can be, that actually lends itself to having a fairly large distribution. Like that's the most efficient way of doing it. People don't really realize that like, trains are extremely friendly to the environment. Um, and some of these supply chains are actually really great. Uh, but then the industry at large kind of like applied that to everything, it seems. And you have like a vast majority of leafy greens grown in Salinas, like in the Southwest United States and shipped like on the same sort of routes that all these other things that don't have a shelf life are shipped on. Um, and you get tons of food waste, you get really low food quality, um, you have tons of food safety issues. The U.S. has like a really bad track record with food safety. And you just have this really funny kind of system here that I think that we just need to look critically at. And how I look at Smallhold is that we're just like, okay, we need to like rethink about this supply chain. Like we still move stuff around, but we don't use cold chain for certain things. Uh, we want to have the fresh product as close as possible to the consumer. So we reduce food waste and it's always fresh and local. And I think that like we can solve it for mushrooms. We can solve it maybe for other kinds of crops, but other need, people need to look at other kinds of crops and dedicate different kinds of supply chain uh, initiatives and ingenuity uh, for, for all types of different kinds of crops because all of it needs it. So I want to go back to something that you said, uh, actually, before we started recording, you know, we were talking about that in many ways, you know, Smallhold is kind of one company in a wave of companies that's been coming to market recently. And, you know, an example of another company that's very different in many ways is something like App Harvest, uh, which came public last year, I think, through a SPAC. But, you know, there are these wave of companies that are basically growing indoors, they're doing vertical farming, um, and I think broadly consumers are really interested in that. But one of the questions you raised is people having reasonable expectations around the business. <laughs> so I wanted to get your perspective. How do you think about that? How have you approached those conversations with investors? How do you think about the business upside of something like Smallhold? I mean, food, food is vast. Everyone eats. And so there's a big business in feeding people. The only thing though, is that it's like, it's, you know, we're talking about distributed farming, these business, the business and the industry is very distributed and there's not like, there's some centralization in certain kinds of crops. But when you're talking about lettuce, um, you know, there are, there are some large players, but uh, it's, it's hard to be the one, you know, the only one that's growing. And I think that there's a ton of potential in indoor farming. It's what I've spent my whole career working on. And so I'm extremely excited about it, though. It's such a small fraction of the production in the United States. It has a really long way to go. And I don't know if money is really going to solve that. It's more time and the other industry has to shift. And the other industry, what I mean is outdoor production. Um, it makes total sense to grow outdoors in certain places, at certain types of year, there's certain crops that does not make sense to grow year round um, in the places that they're grown. Tons of water waste, crazy labor, like there's a lot of problems with it. And so I see a lot of potential in indoor farming solving that. There's a lot of attention in it because people are worried about the world and worried about food. And, you know, the UN has all of these uh, goals and sustainability goals and, uh, you know, calls to action because their population is, is, is growing so rapidly and the food isn't there for it. Um, that's arguable. I think that there's a lot of people that believe we do have land, like we can grow outdoors and actually feed people. But my opinion is more that the climate is changing so fast that a lot of the organisms that we grow can't evolve fast enough for the environment that we're going into. And so like, we need to figure out these solutions now because in 20, 30, 40 years, it's likely that we're going to be relying more on these things 
to have at least a somewhat similar diet that we have today. But the big question is if these companies can exist until then. I think a lot of them can. You know, greenhouse isn't new. There are many greenhouses out there. Um, App Harvest gets credit for being the biggest greenhouse in the United States or something. I don't really think that's true. There's Howlings is an amazing tomato greenhouse. I think they have a facility in Colorado, actually, but they have one in California as well. Most of the in like the greenhouse producers just don't uh, have great PR teams and they more suffer from the main issue with produce is that people don't have brands in produce. They're producers that sell to large distributors at the lowest price possible and ship it for really far distances, waste a lot of produce. Um, the, pro- the tomato probably tastes amazing when it was harvested in these greenhouses, but no one really had any idea about it because they don't have the brand that some of these places do. I don't mean to dispel like a lot of these companies are building some really amazing technology, especially in the vertical farming space. People are focusing on I mean, automation, crazy fertigation and sensor technology. Like some of this stuff is very real. It's not like made up and fake or anything like that. Um, the bigger question really is just how fast can they actually get it to market? And how fast can they prove out their unique economics that um, make it so they can really truly compete in food? What, what I love about mushrooms is that the playing field is kind of equal. Like most, pretty much all the cultivated mushrooms are grown indoors, but they're just grown in kind of worse places than us. And so we aren't competing with the sun, which is like really what the problem is with the vertical farm space. Um, with greenhouses, it's similar. I mean, they use sun, but a lot of time they're using supplemental lights with LEDs or other types of lights. Um, but then there's other kinds of climate control that can end up using a lot of fuel, you know, like if you're growing in the winter, you're going to be still using gas to heat those things. Um, and so there, there's stuff to figure out there, but I think there's still a lot of potential there. I want to ask a question about brand, you know, because obviously prepping for this interview, uh, you know, researching small hold, your logo is beautiful. The packaging you have is beautiful. I mean, even the aesthetic of these, uh, you know, on-site farms, you know, looks really beautiful. It makes the food really appealing. Um, you know, and you talked about that most produce companies, uh, you know, don't have a brand. And that's definitely true. When I go to the grocery store, I feel like you're not doing, you're not in brand selection mode. You're more like, how does this, how do these bananas look versus this other pile of bananas over here? How, why did you guys focus on a, a building a brand and then talk a little bit about some of the intentional decisions you've made? Because from the outside looking in, it looks very intentional, very beautiful. It looks like something you've focused on. Thanks. I appreciate that. It hasn't always been intentional. Um, the So produce, yeah. So there, there are brands that exist like Chiquita Banana, you know, um, Dole. These are brands, but they're not brands that really resonate with consumers. They, they might have at one point, but I'm sure they're spending money on it, but the efforts didn't really uh, come to fruition, I guess, to create a brand that people really cared about in the modern day. And the produce section itself, like people don't really approach it, like companies don't really approach it in the same way that you see in like CPG and stuff like that. Like we don't pay slotting fees or anything like that, um, which is like for listeners, a lot of your favorite brands are paying a lot of money to be on that shelf. Um, And and produce normally doesn't really work like that. Um, I'm sure some people do it, but uh, we're lucky in that we don't have to. But we can apply other kinds of ways of marketing, like we use social media really well, I think. Um, and we try to provide a really aesthetically pleasing product. Luckily, the mushrooms themselves are very cool looking. And when they're grown fresh, they're super colorful and they're super, they look like aliens. And so they do a lot of the talking for us. Um, but... We wanted to have some form of a brand that really resonated with people and people could remember as the company that grows fresh and grows local and grows organically and pays everyone a living wage and grows in all these cool ways. A brand on its own isn't defendable, defensible and those do not last. Like We think that the brand means so much more and I think a lot of consumers are, are realizing that. The evolution of that was really funny for us. Like we thought that we were going to be like a white labeled product always. We thought that we were going to build equipment for people and maybe sell mushrooms, but it wasn't going to be our brand. And honestly, in the beginning, it was like me and Adam just goofing around on Instagram and we built kind of a community around us and um, continue to try to like really build on that community. Now we have an amazing marketing team. Abigail runs the runs the ship there. Um, and uh, 
amazing group of people that are working with different community groups and, you know, using social media in interesting ways. We do a lot of on-site tabling and uh, cooking demos and all that kind of stuff. Um, Normal stuff that you'd expect from a food brand, but um, we try to be as authentic as possible. uh, Try to open our doors to as many people as possible. You know, we try to just sort of educate whenever we can, and it's still continuing to work and help us build that, build, build that brand even further. I want to ask as well about, uh, you know, I know, or at least my understanding is some of your initial customers were restaurants in New York. And, you know, uh, if, if I was an entrepreneur, uh, you know, and I could go and serve a restaurant, especially an incredible restaurant and work with the chef to be able to give them these really fresh ingredients, they can literally grow in their restaurant. That seems incredibly rewarding, even just to kind of feel like you're a part of the food that's being cooked. What kind of like, it would be great to, I guess, understand a little bit of the backstory of how you ended up in some of these restaurants and then just even how the logistics works. Like, where is this being grown in the restaurant? What is, how do they, do they harvest the mushrooms? Do you harvest the mushrooms? How does that whole piece work? Yeah. So with the restaurants, it was different for so many different places. Like we went out and we went to 50 different restaurants and talked to everyone. And it's cool about Smallhold is everyone wants the mini farm, but a lot of time they can't really fit it. And so it's not like you could put it everywhere. But when we were bringing in samples, it was extremely rewarding because people would yeah, cook amazing dishes, serve it to us serve it to our friends, take photos of it. It was just really a lot of fun. Still is. People still do that. Um, but the, uh, the first customer we ever had was Bunker Vietnamese. Uh, they are a Vietnamese restaurant in Bushwick. Uh, they're amazing. They let us grow our first version of the mini farm in their basement. There's no photos of that online because it looked insane. But they ended up showing that to one of the managers at one of the Whole Foods stores and that person was like, I want this at Whole Foods. Like, let's get this in Whole Foods. And then leadership kind of caught on to it. It was just very much this kind of like network effect. Angela Dimiuga was a chef at, the, at Mission Chinese in the city, which is, they have one in San Francisco, but they um, in New York as well. Uh, she moved on. She worked with The Standard and helped us get in there as well. And she's consulting on a bunch of really cool stuff. She just released a book for anyone that's interested um, about Filipino cooking. And, um, she, uh, but she's been a believer. She's kind of been part of our community and just like really been supportive in the beginning. I'm sure someone could find it. Like in the beginning, she, uh, she had like a, she, she was really good at social media and like Audi asked her to do an ad and she was like, I'm going to rent this red Audi and drive it over to Bushwick and like get mushrooms for my mushroom friends. And, uh, anyway, like we just tried to we're just friends with people and just sort of like continue to build on that. But uh, the mini farms are in all sorts of different places. Like we have a standardized unit that's most in most of the places. And so um, this has like a nice, crazy aluminum facade, these beautiful glass windows that you can see in and see all of the mushrooms growing right there. It fogs up from time to time when it's going through the humidification cycle. Um, It does all this kind of cool stuff, but that unit is about four feet by two feet and then about six feet tall. So it's like a, it looks like kind of like a refrigerator, but sort of space age aesthetic. Uh, there's other places that have gotten us to do custom installations. And so if you go to Mason Yaki in Brooklyn or the standard hotels in the East village, they have these uh, wood clad units that are hung above the bars. They're really cool. Like if people, they like harvest the mushrooms and put them on skewers and do all this cool stuff for people. Um, those are custom. We don't put those out too much. It's just kind of for the right customers. So if people are listening and they want a custom mini farm, we're happy to talk to them. Um, but we really try to get people to put in the the more standardized unit because it's it's a little easier for everyone, basically. And then it, it's a, it's all a standalone unit. You can just roll that thing and plug it in and then it's running. Other kinds of installations require remote compressors and there's refrigeration in it. And so it's it's a, it's not the most simple thing to to install into a space. Yeah. And how have you thought, I mean, you can keep this high level, but how have you thought about the business model there? I'm guessing it's, you know, leasing, maybe there's like a subscription fee. How, how, how does that work if somebody wants to have one of these in their restaurant or in their hotel? Yeah. So we've tried lots of things. We tried every kind of, and we still do, we still try different kinds of creative ways of financing this. So the most successful that we've had are people buying the unit and then they buy substrate from us. 
um, that's successful for both parties. And so like that makes it so they're, they, it makes sense for them financially, but then it makes it easier for on both ends for servicing. And so in central market, for example, we send them substrate from our large farms. We're already sending them fresh mushrooms and that goes to their distribution center. And then those go into each of the units. Their team takes care of it. They harvest it. It's great. Other kinds of restaurants, they don't want to do anything. And so we'll provide a service where like either we bake it into the cost of the block or we charge a separate fee. We're happy with either one and just make sure that we can get reimbursed for harvesting those mushrooms and servicing it. But the technology takes care of a lot of it. Like the person who has one of those units, they don't have to like look at their phone or like click a button and be like, oh, I'm growing blue oysters today. Um, all that is automated. And so yeah, that is completely off, off their hands. All they have to do is put a block in there, let it grow out, um, harvest the mushrooms, and then we have to do cleaning cycles. All of the farms are certified organic. It's under our own organic certification. And we have to have certain food safety protocols as well. And so um, we usually provide a service around that as well. Um, but that's kind of baked into the pricing. Yeah, it's fascinating. And obviously, I get that it's complex. You know, you're trying to make two business model, model work. <laughs> you're trying to make your customer's business model work and your own at the same time. Yeah, you know, and it's it's like different people have different goals with it, too. You know, some places like just really want to grow their own produce. And some people want to just like show off mushrooms and both are fine. Um, as long as you're using the mushrooms, the word, we don't want to, this, we're selective. Like we're not going to install in a place that's not going to use the mushrooms, even though we can make money off that. It's the environmental impact of doing that is not what we want to do. And so, um, you know, we, we are also selective on where we install them, but, uh, but people are very excited about it and we're going to continue to do those uh, in the years to come. I want to ask one more question and then we'll move on and wrap up and talk about, you know, lessons that you've learned building small hold so far. And the question I want to ask is around, you know, a movie that came out recently, uh, fantastic fungi. And, you know, as I was, as I mentioned to a handful of people, I was doing this interview, uh, this kept coming up time and time and time again. I feel like for a lot of people, it's their touchstone, at least recently around, uh, you know, mushrooms. Talk about, I guess, what that movie is for people listening that aren't uh, that aren't familiar, and I guess the impact you feel like that had on people's perception of mushrooms, maybe even you know your business. Yeah, so Fantastic Fungi is a movie that was done by Louis Schwartzberg, and they have a whole team. But Louis is a um, like a time lapse genius, and he has a bunch of different movies that are on Netflix around time lapse nature time lapses. Um, that's simplifying it way too much. You should talk to him about it. Um, but uh, they made this amazing film about uh, fungi and the whole kingdom. And it goes into all sorts of different aspects of the fungal kingdom, um, as well as different uh, interests in uh, psilocybin mushrooms, but also just the beauty of the mycorrhizal network that we kind of explained earlier. It's amazing visualizations that um, I think are going to be extremely important for the years to come. They're working on large educational platforms as well. And um, there's a lot of interest in incorporating that into proper, uh, you know, public and private school systems. And uh, so it's important for everyone to watch that, but uh, a lot of people have seen it and it really drove a lot of interest in the mushroom space. The, the mushroom industry and interest was growing rapidly anyway, and it was probably going to happen anyway, but Fantastic Fungi being released on Netflix just like really blew everything up um, in a good way. And um, most mushroom growers I know, you know, have seen a really big influx of interest because of that, that movie. And so I'm um, really grateful for them to release that and to educate more people because it's exactly what we want to. We want to turn people into mushroom people. And, you know, I'm sure that like two out of 10 people that watch that, if not if even more, become obsessed with mushrooms. And, uh, so, so yeah, we, we're, we're grateful for them to release that. Yeah. And even if they didn't become obsessed with mushrooms, I wouldn't be surprised if people started eating more mushrooms, <laughs> noticing the mushrooms when they were in the grocery store. Um, if it kind of that aspect of it changed, Andrew, this has been so much fun. I want to close by asking you a few questions about the lessons that you've learned building small hold, you know, so just as a quick recap, you got, you founded the business with your co-founder in 2017. You've been at this for five years. Uh, and, and you know, your ambitions are, are large. Like you have, you know, started in Brooklyn, you've now expanded, you know, you talked about this 
Los Angeles, uh, this, this macro farm, your next kind of big square footage farm that you opened in Los Angeles. What are some of the ahas and unlocks you've had building small hold so far? And I mean, I'm asking that partially as maybe a mushroom guy, <laughs> partially as a founder. Yeah. I mean, we're still learning so much. Um, I think that like, it's tough for a lot of founders, especially like I'm like a, I'm like very, uh, operational. Like I like basically was the engineering department for a long time and the farming department. And so I like can get in the weeds. Like I very much, I'm not, didn't go to business school. I like know the business really, really well inside and out. That makes it very hard to get out of the weeds. And there's times when you need to get out of the weeds anyway, just because like you need to focus, but also it doesn't really allow your team to grow or to own things. And um, our team's amazing. Our team, like we're great at hiring people, which is really like, it's, I mean, I try really hard, but it's also just like the nature of the people that are here and we've built a culture for that. Um, But it's something about trust and like, well, just like letting go of stuff is so important and really difficult for at least me. And I'm sure it was it's difficult for a lot of founders. Um, there are so many different paths to get to success, even at the same like milestone that you want to get to. And sure, you need to track it appropriately and you need to communicate that in the right ways to your team and your shareholders. But Trusting your team as long as they're motivated is like the most important thing you can do. We're not always the best at it. Like I'm not going to say we're perfect or anything, but like the idea of just like letting go is like the big, one of the biggest things that I could ever do. And it's, and honestly makes things a lot easier too, because you're just like, let's just like, you can roll with it. Like, let's go for it. Um, And now we're just like, I'm in an amazing position where I have people around me that are way smarter than me. And, uh, so like I can do certain things, but like, you know, people learn and they get ownership and, uh, it's way more collaborative than, than if, if you didn't do it that way. And when you look back and kind of think about the last five years, what are some of the most challenging moments that you've had as a founder? And, you know, I think, uh, the, the question I really want to ask around that is if you could share some of those challenges, but more so talk about what you took away from them, what you learned and maybe how you applied that in the business or changed what you changed your approach. I mean, there's tons of challenges. This happens all the time. I mean, the the scariest times are almost running out of money. You know, that's happened happens to most people. Um, you're making models, you know, and like making like the emergency scenarios and all those kinds of things. That uh, is really tough because you have to like stay strong for your team um, and keep people motivated, keep people trusting you, but also like deep inside you're like concerned about what is going to happen. And most of my concern is more about like, you know, our team, like it's like we have a lot of people that rely on this. And so there's a lot rolling on it, not just, you know, we talk about feeding humanity and stuff, but there's a hundred people whose, whose lives like are, are very intertwined with this company. And so, um, that is, is, is tough to, to deal with. Um, but you know, it's all about prepping and again, it's all about communicating and trusting the people around you. Um, you know, we're not like, like radical transparency kind of thing. We try to do something like that. But, um, you know, the more that you can be transparent about the situations that you're in, the more support you can get from people around you. And so that's been helpful as we've as we've built this thing. Yeah, that's so well said. I don't normally ask this question, but just as the last question I want to ask, you know, I feel like we've covered so much ground and there's also so many questions that I had thought of, you know, and didn't, didn't ask in the interview just because there's so much to cover here from mushrooms and the science of mushrooms to, you know, the kind of vertical farming and indoor farming. So just the last question I would ask is, um, what do you hope people take away? And I think take away in terms of why, why mushrooms matter, uh, why maybe small hold matters and why we should all be eating more mushrooms. People just need to try mushrooms out. A lot of people think that they don't like mushrooms because they had a slimy mushroom one time or they think they're allergic. There are people that are allergic, but it's rare. Most people who think that they're allergic just had a bad mushroom at one point. And um, like, obviously talk to your doctor if you really think you're allergic, but like try out other kinds of mushrooms. There's a lot of um, diversity in the fungal kingdom and you might find that there are mushrooms that you actually do like. And try to have fun with it. Like, 
the world is scary and we need to worry about sustainable food and all this kind of stuff. And small holds can really help with a lot of that. But at its base level, you should have fun while you're eating and you should like really enjoy eating and, and feeding your family because it's one of the most enjoyable things you can do. Um, and so try to try mushrooms out because they can be a lot of fun and they can, you know, help the world at the same time. Well, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for coming on. This has been so much fun. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes and text transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 120. That's one, two, zero. And you can learn more about Smallhold at smallhold.com or by following Smallhold on Twitter. At outlieracademy.com, you can find all of our other founder interviews profiling incredible companies like Forward, Eight Sleep, Common Stock, Varda Space Industries, Superhuman, Primal Kitchen, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, and many more. In every interview, we deconstruct the ideas, frameworks, and strategies these founders use to build incredible companies. You can find videos of all of our interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash outlieracademy. On our channel, you'll find all of our full-length interviews as well as our favorite short clips from every episode, including this one. So make sure to subscribe. We post new videos and clips every single week. And if you haven't already, make sure to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Outlier Academy. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you right here with a brand new episode next Wednesday.